Hello, I'm John Hendren, and this is BachCast, episode 34, BWV 1019, the last of the six sonatas for keyboard and violin, or violin and keyboard, is the topic of this episode. So why were we just listening to the gavotte from Bach's sixth partita for, for keyboard? So we'll get to the answer to that question in just a few moments, but I want to start out with the opening movement of this sonata. This one is the odd stepchild, if you will, of the entire collection. Not that there's anything wrong with stepchildren, uh, but to use that, uh, that idiom, it's a little different. It doesn't quite fit the mold that Bach gave us in the first five of the sonatas. And one of the things that's a little strange about it, if you look at it, it's in five movements. It starts with this. We heard three different performances there, and it starts immediately out with the keyboard and the violin together. If you think about most of the ones we've listened to, actually all of them, they've started out, first of all, slow, not fast. And second, we usually let the harpsichord uh, appear first, at least in the first movement, kind of set the stage, if you will, set the tempo. And if you imagine Bach's way of thinking, he may have been, well, I'm going to be at the keyboard. I want to start things out. And then we'll have the violinist come in. Um, and that's not the case with this one. This one just kind of opens up in this very uh, jaunty, dancey, festive sounding opening movement. Now, the first example we listened to, because I gave you three there. First example, and I'm pulling up my uh, my program here. First example was the rendition by um, Giuliano Carmignola, uh, the Italian violinist who has who's done a lot of recordings of Vivaldi. Well, he uh, partnered with Andrea Marcon, who is the director of the Venice Baroque, and they put out that release on the Sony uh, label. And I've taken from it before, and it had sort of a not-too-intense opening. Then we got to the second one, which was uh, Stefano Montanari and uh, Christophe Rousset. And I've also sampled from that one before. That had a little uh, deeper sound, I think, to the recording. A uh, little faster tempo. And I liked the presence of the violin a little better in that one. And then if you wanted to go for the speed round, in the third one we heard Reinhard Goebel, and that was from his recording. This is actually... Um, I actually have two copies of this on record 
Um, the first one I picked up a long time ago, uh, I was still a teenager, and it came on the, it was a black label uh, archive production, but they call it the Galleria series. And I believe it was cheaper. It was a two CD set, and it contained the, uh, in addition to these sonatas, it included some of the ones that Bach wrote with a continuo in the bass. And some of those were uh, questionable whether they're all by Bach. And that was my first introduction. And then uh, when I later purchased uh, their edition, it was, a, it was a box set that included the Brandenburg Concertos, the orchestral suites, the flute sonatas. It included these again. And in that recording were like these extras that were never on the first one that I purchased, which was kind of cool. Uh, Gerbel actually records this twice. Uh, he records it the first time, and it it comes in at 3 minutes and 23 seconds. He records it a second time, and I'll explain why in a moment. Uh, and that comes out at 3 minutes and 3 seconds. So that was the, the fast one, just to give you a taste of that. So the design for BW 1019 is starts with a fast movement. If we look at the very last movement in most of the recordings you're going to come across, it's the same piece of music, similar timing for most all the performers, right? It is the same piece. It's like a, um, there's symmetry there. So he begins and ends with the same piece. I don't need to play it for you again, because literally in the music it says da capo. You just play it over again, which is kind of interesting. Then, when you're looking at recordings, you're going to notice that some of them have alternative movements listed next to them. What's that? You may also see a different BWV number, 1019A. Um, and to get a sense of this, because frankly, some of the uh, CDs that are put out don't explain this especially well. It's a little confusing. And so I pulled up uh, the Wikipedia article, and I can link to that in the, in the show notes. Um, they, they have a very small description of each one of these. And it basically, uh, in reading the paragraph there, I had to read over several times, and I'm still not absolutely sure I understand the history behind all of this. And you're kind of left with, well, what what are these? How should I play them? Should I can I substitute uh, certain movements in there? And why are there so many? The one thing that the Wikipedia uh, says, and we'd have to confirm this because there are some great Wikipedia articles, and then there are some not so great ones. But they make the case that these are earlier movements. And I think about it this way. If Bach is sitting down to write all of these, and he gets to the last one and either needs to publish them quickly, or he's actually using these for more pragmatic reasons, he's actually performing these, um, and he just kind of ran out of steam, he might have done some weird things like, well, I don't have enough material. So I'm going to substitute in some other material. And that's the weird part, because I'm going to play the third movement of this sonata, 1019. And we're not talking about the alternative versions, just the 1019, the third movement. Let's take that a listen. So kind of a jaunty, uh, kind of cool sounding uh, opening there. And it's in a minor mode. 
We started in G major, now we're in minor mode. And where's the violin? Is there a violin part? Now I gave you just a little taste of it, right? I actually think this third move is kind of cool. And it's kind of cool if you think of if a pyramid structure, if you will. Um, or an inverted pyramid, if you prefer to think of it that way. But Bach starts with something, lockstep, violin, and keyboard together. We know he ends that way. And now in the center, the third spot, he gives this solo harpsichord uh, piece. Um, it's just a little unusual. We have not seen this. Is there a pragmatic reason? Is it something he had in his back pocket that he could insert? Very interesting questions. Why is he giving the violinist a break? Um, we don't know. These are questions that, that are up in the air. But it's an interesting, um, interesting thing for this. Now, I've told you in the past episodes when we looked at these that I saw, especially number five, Bach really starting to experiment, right? He started to do some things that he hadn't done in the past. And then we get to this one. So I've been kind of leading you to believe that Bach was, was, was needed time and said, hey, I, I just can't write out these parts. Let me substitute something in. And there is more evidence that that may have been the case. However, think of Bach as this innovator and saying, hey, I'm, I'm writing this. I'm coming with different ways. Scratching his head saying, why do the two players always need to play together? Now, if you really believe that, and that was something he really wanted to point out, perhaps he would have given one of the movements just to the violin. That would be cool, right? Maybe the second and the fourth are like that, but they're not. So what I'm going to play for you now, and we're still uh, using the uh, Reinhard Goebel uh, recording that came out on DG Archive, uh, early 80s. Um, we're going to listen now to the second movement. And after I fade out of there, we'll go to, directly to the fourth movement, just so you can get an idea of what the landscape of this sonata is like. So respectively, again, that was the second and the fourth movements, slower movements, 
think of a pyramid structure. You want symmetry between, if you're thinking at the top or at the bottom, however you want to think about the structure. The middle had solo harpsichord. On either side, we have similar music. I would say similar in the way that Bach is treating it. Uh, there are little melodies, little figures, if you will, that, that get tossed back and forth with counterpoint uh, between the right hand of the keyboard and the violin. The first one, to me, is the better written one, and it's the one that's a little more interesting. And it's because Bach is taking advantage of giving a unique line to the violin for the violin to do something that the harpsichord really can't do so well, which is those longer sustained tones. You'll notice these are both kind of contemplative, if you give it a flavor. Um, and the, the, for, for me, the second one could have been the opening movement. It had enough in common with some of the other opening movements that start out slowly, start with the keyboard first, bring in the violin. And here Bach has changed the positions. And again, we are only grabbing at straws to understand what the structure is, why it ended up this way. Now, if you look at the score, um, I actually went to the, the Petrucci uh, Internet database, and they have a version of the complete score of all of the violin and harp, harpsichord or keyboard sonatas. And though it's not great quality, but it's basically based on a photograph of what they picked up at the Bach Archive in Leipzig. And so you're seeing it not printed, but in, in somebody's hand. Um, I'm not sure it's box hand. I would say it, it, looks, it looks as if it was copied out by somebody else. Um, but it has those Bach-in features to it. Or maybe he was just messy. I don't know. I'm not an expert on reading box handwriting. But it's, it's very economically written. Uh, they're not wasting any space on the paper. It's, it's almost difficult to read because it's just so packed in there. And it's worth, I think, when you're listening to these, to take a look. And musically on the page, they look very simple. Um, but of course, when you hear it, it's like, whoa, there's, there's something there, the interplay that goes back and forth and sort of the gestures that are there. And again, that was Reinhard Goebel with, uh, I believe, Hank Bowman. Uh, he also made recordings with some of the others using Robert Hill. And I always get confused. It's, it's not in my listing. And I still am going to apologize. Um, all of my CDs are still in boxes. I've not yet uh, had shelves built to accommodate them, so I can't go over to the shelf, pull it off, and, and read the liner notes. So I'm relying upon my memory here. But uh, Hank Bowman and Robert Hill both contributed to the original recording. I believe one of them was, I believe it was Bowman who was performing on the, uh, the six sonatas and then the continuous sonatas Robert Hill took over. I hope that's correct. At any rate, that is sort of the structure. You've got two slow movements, you've got a center solo movement, and then these outer, and it's kind of happy and joyful, and wow. So Bach really changes. He's got outer movements in major mode, and the middle stuff is not so happy sounding. So then we get to the, the weirdness, if you will, of looking at what they call the alternative movements. And if you remember when I opened this podcast, I was actually playing something from Bach's uh, Sixth Partita for Keyboard. And why did I play that, I asked? It's because in the alternate versions, he borrows two movements from that Sixth Partita, which is a little strange, right? So he's borrowing from BWV 830, 
uh, the third and the sixth movement from that. And I'm going to cue that up. And the performance you heard earlier, I don't know if I announced it, it's uh, Andreas Steyer, who later became harpsichordist with Reinhard Goebel. Um, and just to give you a little sense, I'm not going to actually put this into uh, the program, so you, you'll hear it kind of uh, secondhand in terms of the quality here, but this is the opening toccata. Kind of a, almost a French overture feeling to it. And there's an allemande. And then we get to the courant. So this is one of the alternate movements that Bach uses to insert into this sonata for violin and harpsichord. Then in the partita, there's an air that does not appear. But then we get a Sarabond. And then you heard little Gavat. So these, these examples I'm playing come from um, Andreas Steyer's recording on the Deutsch Harmonia Mundi label. Uh, I really like the sound of the instrument he uses in that. It's a really nice collection. It's the Klavierübung 1 and 2. So in addition to the six partitas, you get a few of the extra uh, pieces in there that uh, Bach included in that collection. And it's one I always kind of go back to and admire because it's just, the playing is very confident and I, I like the articulation. The sound quality is great. It's one of those recordings that's just really well done. So Bach is borrowing to get to the um, to get to a finished product, it seems. So what you heard uh, was the 1019, the irregular ones, and then he has some alternative versions. What we're going to listen to now came from a recording entitled Il Violino. This was uh, put out on the Deutsche Harmonia Mundi label with. Uh, Capriccio Stravagante. Uh, the violinist in this recording is Manfredo Kramer or Manfred Kramer, and the harpsichordist is Skip Sempe. Bach writes another fast movement here that can substitute for the opening movement. So you have an alternative fast movement. Um, and some of the recordings feature this as the fifth movement and not a repeat of the first. You can imagine somebody scratching their head and going, well, if they exist, why don't we just kind of mix our own, put this together. And so Bach uh, gives us another taste of sort of the uh, the positive, upbeat, G major uh, work. And what I really like about this one is he explores kind of the lower end of the violin. Um, just, just some nice writing, a nice movement. What you heard there again was Skip Sempe and uh, Manfred, Manfredo Kramer. Um, you'll see his name written 
both ways. I believe right now he's known as Manfredo. Uh, when he recorded with Musica Antigua Köln, they dropped the O for whatever reason. Uh, made him sound more German, I guess. Um, I believe he now, he still is active with um, uh, Jordi Saval, and I believe reading that uh, he lives in Argentina. He also has made several recordings with his own ensemble, the curiously named Rare Fruits Council. And his partner in that project was Pablo Valetti, and you've probably uh, remember that name because we featured him as well in recordings of the six uh, sonatas for violin and harpsichord. Uh, he is played, uh, accompanied by Celine Frisch, and maybe we'll end with them, uh, their taste of 1019. They've been sort of the speed demons along with Reinhard Goebel in these recordings. So um, that movement we just heard, again, an allegro, G major, can end the sonata. We have other middle movements that are, again, multiple versions of this that we have. And I'll just give you a little sampling of those. You're going to hear those right now from uh, Catherine McIntosh, who is uh, accompanied by Maggie Cole. And this came from the Chandos Digital uh, Chacon label uh, from 1997. Interesting stuff here. Uh, we get a, a, a minor moded uh, movement. We get a major moded movement. And they're interesting to me because Bach is definitely highlighting the violin part. Uh, we don't get as much of an equal interplay with, with two kind of melodic voices going back and forth. In those, the, the violin uh, comes center stage and sort of gets the attention. Uh, and so, the, again, the different treatments of the way Bach is uh, developing the, the personalities of the instruments and, and the roles that both performers play. Um, I think it's probably the assumption then that these are earlier simply because they maybe adopt this structure. I don't know. Um, what you're left with if you get a recording and you say, hey, I'm trying to understand all this. I'm trying to make sense of what I'm supposed to be listening to, or maybe what Bach had intended. Um, you never know if Bach was around today, we'd say, hey, what do we, what do, we do with all this? And he, you know, he could tell us, don't listen to that. I didn't even think that was good. Uh, throw it away. Or he may say, 
I don't know. What do you think? Uh, because we can't talk to Bach and we'll never really know, I doubt we'll find you know the hidden diary of Bach that says, um, if you happen to have you know six or seven movements sitting around, this is what I would suggest you do, put them together. Now they've had uh, several hundred years to think about it. We're not going to get that insight. And so what I would leave you with is if you have access to one or more recordings and they do include some of these alternative movements, whether for a solo harpsichord or whether they're for the violin and the harpsichord together, um, is to play around, see what you like, what makes sense to you, make up your own structure. Uh, if we look at the official catalog, BWV 1019, we do have a five movement structure. We have allegros on either end. And in the version that's put forth by um, Pablo Valetti and Celine Frisch, their 2003 release on the Alpha label, they do the, the two different allegros on the outside. To me, they work together. Um, and then we get the, the Largo as the second movement, the Adagio as the fourth movement. And we get that solo um, allegro movement for the harpsichord, which to me is just a very powerful piece. And if you balance that, I think it does have some balance. And I would venture forth to say maybe what we were left with as the full 1019 is what Bach was thinking was his best effort forward, is to highlight something very unusual, a solo movement for the keyboard in the middle of the, a five-movement structure, and to feature it kind of strong and jaunty, and it's in a minor mode, and that's contrasted by the two outer movements, which are a major mode. There may be a story, there may be a programmatic element to this that Bach was thinking about when he put this together. We have certainly uh, seen those ideas put forth before, and some of which have been very convincing. And so uh, I am not enough of a Bach scholar, but this one will challenge you, likely, as it has challenged me, as to how am I supposed to, um, uh, how am I supposed to enjoy this the best? And to me, the best way to enjoy it is to listen forth what performers who have had to grapple with this as well in the recording projects and say, hey, this is, we, we're putting our best foot forward. And so I'm going to end with Mr. Valetti and Ms. Frisch, the fifth movement. The, this is the same um, music that we heard earlier featuring um, uh, Manfred Kramer. So Kramer and Valetti. Uh, our friends who, who formed the Rare Fruits Council. And here is Mr. Valetti uh, on his own. And to me, this is my favorite recording of 1019. Uh, why? It, it adopts tempos. It makes sense to me. Uh, the recording quality and just the, the sound of the instruments to me is superior to anything else out there. Um, as you know, I'm a big fan of Reinhard Goebel and his recording is great, but that early 80s recording with him has always bothered me just a little bit because he comes across sounding very thin-sounding. Um, and I don't blame the performers as much as I'd use the recording technology at the time. This recording, however, if you were going to only buy one, uh, just is a little richer and fuller. And again, the interpretation on this sixth sonata, to me, is a real winner. And so enjoy the last movement, and thank you for listening to this edition of BachCast. Thank you.
Thank you.